If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Colossians chapter 4. It's on page 985 in your pew Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those from under a chair. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep it as our gift to you. We would love um, for you to have that. So on page 985. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18 this morning. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 18. The title of today's sermon is Intro to Communication. Well, one of my least favorite classes in college was a class called, you might have guessed it, Intro to Communication uh, with Dr. Bailey. Uh, I hated it for various reasons, but that's completely off topic from where we're going today. Uh, Nonetheless, in that class, we had to give a number of different speeches, uh, but we also learned about business communications and how to write things like form letters, complaint letters, and even routine email etiquette. I know, thrilling stuff. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see three different aspects of communication at the close of Paul's letter to the Colossian church. We're going to see communication with God, communication with the world, and communication with each other as Christians. It's so uh, easy at the end of a letter like this to assume that this is just kind of Paul signing off the way you might in something like a form letter. And in some ways, Paul is following the letter writing structure of his time. But this is so, so much more than that. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. Colossians 4 verses 2 through 18. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, Who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. 
Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So our three points as lenses through which we'll, we'll view this text are these. Number one, communicating with God. Number two, communicating with the world. And number three, communicating with each other. As Paul brings this letter to a close, I just want us to remember that he's given us throughout this letter so much rich food. He's served us a, a brilliant platter of doctrine, helping us understand who Christ is and what he's done. He's taught us that Christ is supreme over all things. Then he followed that doctrine with application or what we're called to do as followers of Christ. Killing sin, putting on virtue, family and economic relationships transformed. And now, at the end of his letter, he says this. Look with me again at verse 2. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What an interesting command. Think about it. The Colossian church, as we've learned over and over and over again, they had a lot going on. They had been tempted with Gnosticism and with this teaching that Christ was a good start, but real Christianity included secret knowledge, mystical rituals, and higher spirituality. There were so many things going on there that they were shifting their focus away from Christ into lesser things. And so, in closing, Paul wants this laser focus on the kingdom and on the things that matter most. So how does he do it? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Really, Paul? But there's, there's so much for us to do as a church. Isn't prayer just a passive waste of our time, Paul? Don't you have better advice for us? Prayer? Really? Really. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul knew that communication with God is crucial to kingdom focus for the Colossians and for us here this morning. Paul knew that prayer is the backbone to everything that happens in and through the church. Epaphras, as we learned, has planted this church through blood, sweat, and prayer. In verse 12 of our text, we see that this is still what he's doing, praying, agonizing in prayer, actually. But the fact that Paul's having to remind the Colossian church of this suggests that they'd become lax in this discipline. So I want us to consider this today. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, 
and in church history, every single spiritual awakening was founded on corporate, prevailing, intensive, kingdom-centered prayer. We could do this multiple places in Scripture, but I want us to look at the early church in the book of Acts. Jesus gives them the commission in Acts 1.8. He ascends to heaven. And then a couple verses later in Acts 1, 12 through 14, it says this. Acts 12, or 1, verses 12 through 14, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Devoting themselves to prayer. What a word. Devoting. Now, would you say that your prayer life could be described by the word devotion? No judgment here. Transparently, I'm convicted by this this week. Often, my prayer life would be described more like a fire extinguisher. I pick it up only in emergencies to put out the fire. Other times, my prayer life can look more like a hobby, something I do occasionally and leisurely. But devotion? Think CrossFit here. <laughs> Those are some devoted people. Their whole lives revolve around CrossFit. They eat, sleep, and breathe CrossFit. It's a lot more than a hobby. They're devoted to it. That's the picture of prayer we get in the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to prayer. Charles Spurgeon, on the topic of prayer, said this. He said, prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell for they pray so languidly. Others give but, but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. Boldly, continuously, with all your might. This isn't a hobby. Devotion. So how about you? If you were to assess your prayer life this morning, fire extinguisher, hobby, or devoted, we will always give time to what we think is important. And when the church devotes themselves to prayer, things happen. Acts chapter 2 Right after they're devoted to prayer, the Holy Spirit comes. He empowers them to preach the gospel clearly. 3,000 people are saved and baptized. And the very next verse says this, Acts 2, 42. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Devoted to prayer. They didn't stop. That's the meaning of the word Paul uses in our text this morning in Colossians, which is translated, continue steadfastly. This word proskartereo. It means to be devoted, to persist obstinately, to persevere in, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is the fuel that makes the engine of the gospel witness run. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful in it. This sounds a lot like what Jesus said to the disciples in the garden the night before his crucifixion. Mark chapter 14, verse 38. Jesus said, watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is is weak. Watch and pray. One commentator notes that this carries the sense of being alert and aware of the circumstances in which we live. Being alert, watchful in prayer. In another text, Matthew 25, verse 13, Jesus says this, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Same word, watch referring to his second coming. The context of watchfulness here in our, our letter to the Colossians, it's unclear what context he's using it. But it may even mean being watchful for answers to prayer. That's why Paul would say to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Be watchful with thanksgiving. So, I want to ask a question. If God has answered prayers that you've been praying, would you know it? We talked about this a little bit in our prayer sermon series, but one helpful thing is to actually keep a prayer journal or have prayer cards where you write out specific prayers that you've been praying repeatedly. As God answers them, be watchful in it. Take note be thankful. This may sound silly, but uh, a little bit over a year ago, uh, I was sitting in Verve with Brian Bullard right here, and I asked him how I could be praying for him. And he said this. He said, I really want to see my wife Faith flourish in her artwork, but she doesn't have a space to do art in our current apartment. So I would love for us to pray that she would have a place and a space to paint. So I wrote that in my prayer book, and the two of us began praying. If you haven't seen Faith's painting or her studio, and the amount of artwork that she's currently putting out, you should. It's fantastic. It's amazing. I'm thankful for that. I say that to say... I'm not sure I would have even remembered that we were praying for that if I hadn't looked back in my prayer book. God answers prayers. And we get to be thankful. I'll just add here, isn't it amazing that God does hear our prayers? 
That's only possible because of the gospel. Because of our sin as human beings, every single one of us is cut off from relationship with God. Every single one of us. And yet, because Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life in every single way, a way that none of us are capable of, lived a perfect life, then he went to the cross and died on our behalf so that we can be reconciled with God that God can hear our prayers. It's only because of the gospel that God can hear our prayers. So communicating with God is vital to our life as Christians. Paul wants us to know that. But he also wants us to know about the importance of, point two, communicating with the world. So we communicate with God, but we also communicate with the world. So immediately after calling us to prayer, look what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. First, notice that, that Paul says, us. The same time, pray also for us, not me. Isn't that fascinating? After all, we are talking about Paul here. Other than Jesus, the, the greatest preacher and missionary in the world. And yet, he does ministry on a team. He works with others. He's not a Lone Ranger Christian. How prideful must we be to assume that we can do better than Paul? He knows that to communicate to the world, he needs others. And we do too. And look what he asks the church in Colossae to pray. Not that God would let him out of prison. That's what I would be praying for. That's not what he asked for. Remember, he's writing this letter to them from prison. And he asks for prayer that God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? Remember, the end of chapter 1 of this letter, the mystery is what was hidden and now revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul said. So, Paul is asking that a door be opened to share the gospel. Then, in verse 4, he says, that I may make it, meaning the gospel, clear, which is how I ought to speak. Again, this is Paul. Isn't it astonishing that in spite of who he is, he knows his own weaknesses, and his need for the Spirit's empowering to preach the gospel and to be clear in his speech. Again, brothers and sisters, is this how you pray? First, for yourself. Do you regularly pray for open doors to share Jesus? This should be a regular part of our prayer life as Christians. Not primarily prayers for our own comfort and safety. 
even though those are good things. But prayers for open doors to share the gospel. Prayers for boldness to take those opportunities. I want to challenge us to pray as individuals and as a church like this over the next 30 days at least. Will you commit to pray every day for the next 30 days for open doors to share Jesus? I want to challenge you with that. Put it at the top of your prayer list. Pray for open doors for the word to declare Christ. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for others. As J.I. Packer once famously said, pray as if it all depended on God. Then proceed as if it all depended on you. Pray. 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 Then go and share the good news. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. It says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you see that? The harvest is plentiful. Yet, Jesus' first command is for them to pray. It's no different here in Santa Cruz County. The harvest is plentiful, and we should pray. So, pray for yourself, for gospel opportunities, and the boldness to take them. Second, pray for us. And by us, I mean the elders of this church. Do you pray for our preaching? That we would be clear, as Paul says, which is how we ought to speak. I humbly but unapologetically plead with you to do this. We labor in the text each and every week because we believe that God's word will not return void. Now, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11 says this. It says, for as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We believe this with all of our hearts. That's why we preach. Yet, we want our speech to be clear. Just like Paul. We know, I know my own human weakness. We know that we need God to enable us to carry out our calling. Please, please pray for us as we communicate the gospel. Would you consider putting that in your prayer journal as well? Each Saturday night or even Sunday morning to pray for whoever's preaching that week, whether it's me or Tyler or Ross or Dustin. Pray that we be clear in communicating God's word faithfully. The success of gospel ministry relies on the prayers of God's people. We need your prayers. 
so that we can communicate the word formally. But communicating formally isn't the only thing that Paul's concerned with here. Look at the next couple of verses. Verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. As has been the case throughout the letter, Paul is interested in our talk, but also in our walk, how we live. And both of those things, our talk and our walk, communicate the gospel to the world. So Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. I want us to remember this. He says, walk in wisdom. Wisdom isn't just about knowledge. Wisdom is taking knowledge and applying it rightly. So when you interact with those outside the church, are you wise? Are you walking in wisdom? Are you arrogant, prideful, antagonistic, impatient, judgmental? Or are you wise, displaying the character of God himself? That's what we're being called to, making the best use of the time. Plain and simple, each and every one of us only has 24 hours in a day. How will we use them? Frivolously and for our own comfort? Or walking in wisdom toward outsiders with the greatest message in the entire universe? How are you stewarding your time outsiders. Paul then goes on to give some pointers in this. Look at this. In verse 6, he says, let your speech, so talks about walking in wisdom towards outsiders, and then he gives us some definition. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is something that I absolutely loved about Ravi Zacharias. If you've never heard him speak, you should. He passed away this last year. But if you've ever seen him speak publicly, or even directly one-on-one to an individual, it's always gracious. Even when there's sharp disagreement, he presents the Christian worldview clearly, compellingly, and gently. Can we just be honest that this isn't the culture that we live in? Scroll through YouTube for 30 seconds. You'll immediately see videos of so-and-so owns so-and-so. John Doe destroys James Doe. I'm afraid that this kind of posture has gone much farther than YouTube. Out into the streets. Even into Christianity. Paul says, let your speech sometimes be gracious. No, it's not what he says. Let your speech always be gracious. Would those closest to you describe your speech this way? Paul then says that our speech should be seasoned with salt, gracious, seasoned with salt. 
If you remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, we learned that Jesus calls us as Christians to be salt and be light. There in Matthew 5, salt was being used as more of a preservative. And we're definitely called to be that as Christians. But here in Colossians, salt carries with it some of the connotation of flavor, seasoning, be seasoned with salt. This was a a Jewish idiom for keeping things interesting. So, in your speech as Christians, are you bland or salty? Does your speech make others thirst for more? Again, we have the greatest news in the entire world. When we're saturated in God's word, it can't help but come out in our speech. When we've been born, of, when, when we've born the fruit of the Spirit, our, our conversations with non-Christians should be interesting. I used to get to go to Giants games all the time uh, when we lived up in the Bay Area. And many of you know that uh, I got to go a lot on Rob Schneider, the comedian's tickets. Um, ridiculous view of the game. His mom went to our church and she would often distribute those tickets to us. Really lucky. But one of the best parts about sitting down there, uh, 11 rows up, was the people that we were surrounded by. They were students of the game. Not only did they know the game of baseball, but they knew the whole history of the Giants organization. They knew so many details about the players themselves. And so I loved getting to go to the game, loved getting to watch the game that close, but more than anything, I loved getting to talk baseball with these people who were watching the game because it was interesting. Nothing is worse than when Christians make the gospel boring or irrelevant. Be salty. Gracious, be salty. Finally, Paul says that we should be those things so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This sounds an awful lot like 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 says this. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, knowing how to answer each person, or being prepared to make a defense. doesn't come by osmosis. It comes through meditating on, studying, discussing, praying through and being saturated in the word of God. Now, I don't hear Paul or Peter saying that this is only a job for professionals. This is a calling for all Christians. So I ask you this morning, Christians, are you gracious? Are you salty? Can you give an answer? That's how we're to communicate with the world. Again, pray for this. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. So Paul has encouraged us, first and foremost, to communicate with God, and then to communicate with the world. 
Third, communicating with each other. Point three. Uh, this will be the, the shortest of my three points, but do you notice how great this list of people is at the end of the letter? Paul isn't going at it alone. There's a rich amount of relationship between Paul and these people that he mentions. We see that the Colossian church is concerned about Paul. They're asking how he's doing. And instead of taking up more parchment, writing about his situation, he sends real people to share in person. Verses 7 and 9, it says, He sends Tychicus and Onesimus, both called faithful, beloved brothers. Then he lists off a number of people that they all know in common. There's some amazing stories if we wanted to pick out each of those names and go through them. He lists three Jewish Christians and three Gentile Christians here. There's so much that could be said about this. It could be said about each one of these people. But I want to focus briefly in on just a couple of these names. Look at verse 10. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is the guy who wrote the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, that we're going to be jumping back into two weeks from now. But he's also the guy who actually got into it with Paul in Acts chapter 13 and 15. They have a sharp disagreement. Paul and Mark have a rocky relationship, but they're reconciled. Paul is speaking well of him to the church in Colossae. This is Paul talking the talk and walking the walk, living out the gospel of forgiveness that he preaches. He's forgiven Mark. That's a glorious thing. Then, in verse 14, Paul also says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. As you may have guessed, this is the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. <laughs> Can you imagine the conversations that the three of these guys must have had? Paul, Mark, and Luke all in a jail cell, encouraging one another, discipling each other, sharing difficulties and recalling stories of Jesus. Do you have a band of brothers or sisters like that? If not, I encourage you to find people to do life with, people you can eat with, encourage, challenge, disciple, share difficulties, and talk about Jesus with. Paul isn't merely writing a form letter here. He loves this church. He's involved in real people's lives. He wants them to know Jesus, know each other, and run the race together. He wants them to see Christ as supreme. He wants them to reflect Christ's character in their lives. And he wants them to pray. And that's my prayer for you as Santa Cruz Baptist Church. So let's pray.